This episode of Case Acquaint contains subject matter that may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Hello there, welcome back to Case Acquaint. You have found episode 34. We have a couple of announcements for you before we get started. We have some social media changes coming up we want to tell you about. First, we will retain our Facebook page for the podcast. We're going to have some new team members coming on board to facilitate discussion and fulfill some admin tasks for us for the Facebook page. Please be sure to like and follow the Facebook page or join the discussion group. Due to Facebook policies, we will no longer have an account which can be friended. We're going to keep our Instagram account that will also be admined by some new team members. So we're very excited about these changes. Feel free to check out our website to see how to connect with us. If you have a case you'd like to submit, there's a form you can complete. Someone from the podcast team will respond. Also, we're active on Reddit under you, Case Acquaint. Finally, we would very much appreciate your five-star review on iTunes, podcasts, or whatever platform you use if that platform has the capability of reviewing. If you listen on YouTube, please give those episodes a thumbs up. Commentary on the cases are welcome since our whole reason for producing a podcast in the first place is to generate engagement and call more attention to these cases. Also to that end, it would be wonderful if you could take a few minutes to share our podcast with others who might care about this subject matter. Thank you for considering performing these small favors for the show. As this podcast grows, so will the quality. Right now, we operate on a bare minimum, and we'd like to be able to offer better sound quality, production, editing, and more. So with all that said, now on with our stories. Today, we're going to tell you about two different people who each mysteriously disappeared from the same rural North Carolina county within the same year. These are the stories of Michelle Lynn Hundley-Smith and Angela Whalen Hudson. Just to be clear, we don't believe these two actual disappearance incidents are related in terms of the circumstances. But as you know, we like to call attention to similarities and patterns in cases. And we'll be getting into those patterns later. I'm pretty sure after listening to these two stories, it won't be a mystery to you why we decided to tell both of them at the same time. First, we're going to tell you about the disappearance of Michelle Lynn Hundley-Smith. Michelle Smith was a married 38-year-old mom of three, and she was living in Eden, North Carolina, which is just up near the North Carolina and Virginia border, and located within the jurisdiction of Rockingham County Sheriff's Office. On the evening of Sunday, December 9, 2001, Michelle was reportedly going to drive up to Martinsville, Virginia to go Christmas shopping. That's not even 20 miles away, so it's not like she was driving two hours. It was probably 25 minutes over the old country roads, even though Martinsville is in a different state. Michelle was driving her green minivan, a 1995 Pontiac Trans Sport. It had a vanity plate on it which said, Rockin' On. 
So Michelle left her home, and there is a small inconsistency in the published information about her case. Some counts state that it was 6.30 p.m., which would have made it very nearly dark outside if she did leave at that time, because twilight hit at 6.15. Updated pages with Michelle's story on them state that she left at 8.30 p.m., which you might think would be a bit late to be Christmas shopping, but some places do stay open late during the Christmas season. Even though it was dark, the weather was fine. It was clear, no raining or snowing, and in fact, the entire week, the temperature only varied between the 40s and 50s Fahrenheit. So the possibility that Michelle could have encountered a snowstorm or a flash flood is pretty much zero. It's worth mentioning, though, that on those dark country roads, even if they are paved and well-traveled, they can be very dark. This is most of the information that's been released about Michelle's case. If you look at the roads that lead from Eden to Martinsville, we're going to find, and I bet if we saw the same roads back in 2001, it would be even more so, there's a lot of dense forest on both sides of the road. That area is rural, and even in the wintertime, when you would imagine trees have lost all their leaves, well, in that area, most of these trees are evergreens. So you can have dense forests all year round. Recently, an advocacy page was created by a loved one of Michelle's. And on that page, which we will link in the show notes, it states that Michelle's disappearance was never investigated. So what happened to Michelle Lynn Hundley Smith? Could she have run away? That's what authorities many times decide at the beginning and that's their excuse for never investigating a disappearance. When people come back, that's fine. Good job. You were right, authorities. Usually they come back within a week or so of their disappearance. So when Michelle didn't come back, why wasn't there an all-out search for her? All these years, since that's what the original investigators decided, nobody seemed to ever take a second, more objective look at her case. And that type of irresponsible handling of a disappearance can be so damaging to families who have nowhere else to turn. I've often wondered what I would do if my loved one disappeared one day when they were supposed to be back, say, within just a few hours, and they never showed up, and then cops never looked for them. And the only thing they can say is that my loved one decided to run away when I know my loved one better than they do. How harmful do you think that would be to children who are waiting for action on the part of the only entity with the authority and the duty to investigate a disappearance? I can't imagine how damaging and traumatic that would be, and when I hear this kind of thing happening, I always think to myself, what police would want their children told if they themselves disappeared? Would they want someone to dismiss them and say, your mom must have run off somewhere? Oh, she must have wanted to make a clean start somewhere else. Of course not. If you love your kids, it would kill you to know someone is telling your kids that while you're not there with them. Other possibilities investigators may have entertained was that maybe Michelle was having marital or personal problems. We don't know, and it's not mentioned in any of the reports. Michelle is from that area. It's where her extended family all lived at the time. We found no evidence that Michelle had the means or the inclination to leave everything she knew. 
the time has long since passed that most any problem she may have had back then could still be lingering now. But the idea that she decided to up and run away is just plain ridiculous at this point after all these years. You know, obviously there are other possibilities. Michelle's car, even though the weather was fine, could have gone off the road and encountered an accident. Authorities never looked for her that we could find anyway, so there's no telling where her car might be if she did encounter an accident. Some people around there have so much land they don't know everything that's on their land. And if you don't live in the area, it might be hard to imagine how difficult it could be to find a body, much less a minivan, and a green one the same color of evergreen trees at that. Walking through dense vegetation with invasive vines and thick brush mingled with half-choked magnolias and evergreens, some areas which are all pine needles and pine cones are so wild that in some places it can act almost like quicksand, it's so thickly built up. Also, we can't forget all the pests that populate these forests, maybe not so much in December, but there are only a couple few months of the year you don't have to worry about things like copperhead snakes, water moccasins, other snakes that bite you you probably won't die from, wild boars, plus all the bugs, like big gross spiders and mosquitoes. Needless to say, these forests are physically challenging to search, and then you also need to get permission from landowners, which isn't always easy in places like rural North Carolina and Virginia. Not that authorities asked, because again, we have no information that they ever even looked beyond the side of the road. So we've addressed the runaway theory, which is frankly the least plausible after all these years. We've got the accident theory, which there's still plenty of room for investigation on that front because they never looked for. If Michelle decided to go off somewhere else, not directly on the way to Martinsville, there are many places she and the van could have ended up. Either way, there are countless bodies of water, from creeks to rivers to retention ponds and lakes, in which she and her van could still be today, since no one's looked. Another possibility is that someone targeted Michelle, either on her way to, at, or on the way home from shopping. It could be somebody she knew or a stranger, no way of knowing. If she did meet with foul play, she and her minivan, again, could be anywhere. Speaking of that minivan that's never been found, we wonder if that VIN was ever flagged. Now, talking about the foul play theory, there's a serial killer who's doing eight life sentences right now in a Virginia prison. He lived, worked, and killed in that general area of Virginia and North Carolina. In fact, for a completely random attack on a motorist in 2005, he is the only suspect. His name is Frederick Hammer. Hammer has lived all over the place between Virginia and Tennessee over the recent decades. He was originally from Crumpler, which is another North Carolina-Virginia border town. It was near this town on a stretch of road that a 30-year-old husband and father, Timothy Shatley, was driving late at night on his way home from work. As Shatley approached a one-lane construction zone over a bridge, police theorized he stopped for a light. At that point, it's believed someone shot through the windows of his van from close range, killing him. But not before the van accelerated, traveling another 200 feet before coming to a rest. 
Not long after that, a man named Jimmy Blevins disappeared. Jimmy happened to be Frederick Hammer's nephew, and Jimmy lived just a couple hundred yards from the scene of Shatley's murder. Hammer spent lots of time at Jimmy's house before Jimmy disappeared. Years later, Hammer admitted to both crimes according to authorities, but he's not been charged with Shatley's murder. Like I said, he's serving eight life sentences already right now. This is a person who has spent most, if not all, of his free life robbing and killing. But what he's currently doing time for was the brutal murders of three people who owned and worked on a Virginia tree farm in 2008. They were unfortunate enough to catch him breaking into their safe. The elderly owner of the tree farm had apparently helped Hammer out at times by giving him some contract work, and this is how Hammer repaid him. So... He was eventually convicted of those three murders. Then later, Hammer confessed to killing his nephew and Shatley. No telling what he was up to before or after until he was finally arrested. But since going to prison, he has bragged to other inmates that he's killed 17 people. And police say they have evidence that implicates him in over 12 murders. In 2012, he confessed to the March 2001 disappearance and murder of a Tennessee woman, Julie Lovett. 29-year-old Lovett was said to have been using a payphone in Mountain City, Tennessee when she disappeared without a trace. She had been dating Hammer's son, and Hammer later claimed that she called him for a ride. He said he killed her and then transported her body to North Carolina to dispose of it. Her body has never been found. Hammer is just as infamous for his lying and attention-seeking behavior as he is for killing. So authorities never put too much stock in what he confesses to unless they have evidence linking him to a crime. Since we're talking about Hammer, I might as well mention one more thing about him. All of this could have been avoided. This dirtbag was convicted of murder in Pennsylvania back in 1979, Due to the lack of common sense and rational thinking that infected the minds of the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court at the time, he was granted a new trial and was acquitted in 1986 based on doubt he created by lying. After that, he then decided to move back to North Carolina where he became a handyman and sold firewood. And then he caught a conviction for writing bad checks. You know, we don't have a lot of time to talk more about Hammer, but if he has his way, you'll hear from him again. In his nauseating arrogance, he's looking for a ghostwriter to help him write his autobiography. So those are most of the theories we read about and discussed ourselves when we learned about Michelle's case. To us, what stands out the most is the lack of media coverage, the callous and attention that was paid to and dismissal of Michelle by the authorities, thus creating unambiguous opportunity for investigation even today, with many avenues yet to be explored. Michelle Lynn Hundley-Smith was 38 years old when she disappeared back on December 9, 2001. She drove a green 1995 Pontiac Transport Michelle's Caucasian, and at the time of her disappearance had brown hair, hazel eyes, a scar on her upper right arm, and a birthmark on one of her ankles that is shaped like a baseball bat. She stood between 5'3 and 5'5, and she weighed about 150 pounds. 
Michelle was said to be wearing a green blouse, blue jeans, brown moccasins, her wedding ring, and another gold ring with four birthstones. Towards the end of the episode, we're going to provide resources for contact if you have information to share about Michelle Lynn Hundley-Smith. Next, we're going to talk about another disappearance in Rockingham County, and this happened in September of 2001. This story has lots of information from people who love Angela and miss her. It's unfortunate that this is another case that wasn't investigated, and we don't quite understand why. We're going to first provide the bare facts, and then we're going to tell you what Angela's family say they experienced after she disappeared, when the best time to find out what happened to her would have been in those early days. This is the story of the disappearance of Angela Whalen Hudson. Angela, Angie to her loved ones, was a 33-year-old wife and mother living in Pelham, North Carolina, an unincorporated area located in Rockingham County and also near the Virginia border. Angela was not from North Carolina. She was from Arizona. But she did have some family nearby, and in fact, that was one of the reasons she moved to the area initially. To support her family, Angela worked in a daycare environment. She loved children, and according to Angela's sister, caring for children was her passion. So from what we can gather, Angela moved to the area, got settled, and then she met and married Robert, which resulted in her move to that house in Pelham, from which she disappeared. The first important fact about this case that's not mentioned in her NamUs case profile is that in mid-August of 2001, Angela filed for and was granted an order of protection from Robert. According to the order, Angela could stay in the family home until she was able to secure new employment and a different place to live up to one year from that date. You might find this hard to believe, but this is the information we have. Because her husband had a contracting business based out of the workshop that was located on the same property as the home, he was given permission by the judge to use his shop between the hours of 8 a.m. and 4 p.m. These buildings were about, some say, 500 feet, some say 200 feet apart from each other. Now, if you look at this property up on satellite maps, even now, it's mostly dense forest. There's a winding driveway, and the home doesn't seem to be visible from the main road. The shop is even farther back, into the depths of the property at the end of that winding driveway. And if you drive in and you want to go to the workshop, you'll be passing that house. In fact, it's unavoidable. So Angie, while she did have an order of protection, was still subjected to the presence of the person against whom that order was granted. When Angela was granted this order of protection, her aunt, who lived in the area, was with her. The aunt has reported that as they were leaving court that day, she was witness to Angela's husband saying, you'll be out by Christmas. Although Angela was a private person, her aunt says that Angela told her that if anything ever happened to her, 
The aunt should go find Angela's journals because she was documenting everything that went on between her and Robert. This is all according to Angela's aunt. Angela had decided to file for divorce, and on the morning of Thursday, September 20, 2001, she walked her young children to the road to catch the school bus. Those two children were from a previous relationship, and Robert was not their father. Angela had an appointment with an attorney that day, but she never made it to that appointment. According to what the officials have released, she was last seen by her husband at 10 a.m., and he is the last person who claims to have seen her. Also, neighbors said that Robert was the only person they noticed coming or going on or off the property. That day, Angela's children arrived home to an empty house, even though Angela's car was still there. Halfway prepared food was sitting out as if someone had walked away right in the middle of making dinner. The phone to the home was not in working order. We don't know if the lines had been cut, if someone just didn't pay the bill, or if the actual phones were taken out. But imagine what that must have been like for Angie's kids when they got home, couldn't find their mom, and had no way to contact anyone besides Robert, the man their mom was afraid of, enough so to get an order of protection. They reportedly asked him if he knew where she was, and he reportedly told them that she, quote, went somewhere. So Friday rolled around and Angie's aunt, with whom Angie had plans for dinner that night, couldn't get a hold of her, but she could tell that something was wrong with the phone. She called the Rockingham County Sheriff's Office and asked them to perform a welfare check. And they found Angie's children in the house alone, the phone line disabled, and Robert in his workshop. Here's where things get murky in terms of investigational sophistication. Yes, that would be from the very beginning. According to the NamUs page, Angela told what they call a family member that she was going somewhere. Guess whose word they're using to state something as a fact? Robert, the guy Angie had an order of protection on. And so when you look at these posters, you think, oh, she told a family member she was leaving. Where did she decide to go? Why did she leave her children behind? Wow, what an irresponsible mother leaving her children and her glasses, her medication, her purse, her jewelry, all her clothes, and her car like that. And that has now become the narrative of Angela's missing persons case because they just took what he said as fact. When the rest of Angie's family found out that she had disappeared into thin air, her sisters flew in from out of state to try to find her and in the meantime arrange for the care of Angie's children. They spoke with the initial detectives, who, according to Angie's sister, ended up telling her, oh, she probably just ran away, which of course is what they also decided Michelle Hundley Smith did. Her sister also reported that some suspicious things happened while they were looking for Angie, trying to figure out what could have happened to her by themselves, and also trying to gather up her belongings from the house. There were areas of Angie's home that a family member of Robert 
physically prevented them from going, according to her sister. One area was a room that held a deep freeze. Another area was a room in the workshop that held a bunch of saws. You're probably asking yourself, why didn't the police do a search themselves? And that would be a very good question, and one that still today has never been answered. Her sisters found some journals of Angie's. One journal had poetry, and the other, curiously, had a bunch of ripped out pages. So at this point, Angela's family was horrified and they called one of the detectives assigned to the case. Angie's sister says that the detective listened to what she had to say about the problems they encountered in Angie's home and then said, I'll look into it. But years later, she said she asked a newer detective who had taken over if there was anything in the file about that phone call she made and if they ever looked into it. The new detective said there was no record of her ever having called them to report this experience. The family says that Robert spoke with authorities twice and refused to take a polygraph. The family member Angela's sister says prevented them from accessing areas of Angela's property has, according to what authorities told her, refused to speak with them at all. So all this clearly made her family suspicious, and to this day, they still don't understand why no search was ever done for Angie. Why the things she says she reported to them in good faith were ignored, according to what they told her later. If something did happen to Angie, what good is an order of protection if it doesn't in fact protect? Angela Whalen Hudson was 33 years old on September 20th, 2001, when she disappeared from Pelham, North Carolina. Angie is Caucasian. She's five foot seven. She was 120 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She had blonde hair and has blue eyes. She had a red scorpion tattoo on her back, a Chinese dragon on her upper right shoulder, and Egyptian hieroglyphics on her right ankle. She had an abdominal scar from a tubal ligation surgery. As with Michelle's disappearance, there's been little to no media coverage. In 2008, a reporter for the News and Record wrote a short piece on the case. He characterized a detective with the Rockingham Sheriff's Office as saying that there was nothing to indicate foul play was involved in Angie's disappearance. But they said it wouldn't hurt to take a fresh look at the case, and that's all we could find the authorities have ever said about Angela Whalen Hudson estranged wife of Robert Hudson, the last person to see her. The property Angela had been occupying and that Robert was supposed to stay away from was never searched and physical evidence was never gathered. So when they talk about, we ran out of leads, that's not true. There were plenty of leads. Those leads were ignored. Rockingham County is no different than many other rural North Carolina counties. It's had its fair share of scandals in dirty, dishonest, and unmotivated law enforcement. They investigate what they want and they ignore what they want. Their duty to the community at times has been completely neglected. There's no doubt that this area of North Carolina has had issues with ethics breaches, and that's why we think somebody over there needs to demand that the FBI gets involved. 
I'm not talking about the SBI, I'm talking about the FBI. Because the FBI is much better at investigating departments that are not doing their jobs. I know that sounds harsh, but you have to understand. We've profiled police departments that do perform their jobs, and those police departments get results. In fact, those police departments get convictions even when there's no body. But those police departments are the ones that go in and search when someone's missing. As of the day we uploaded this show for you to hear, there is clear evidence that the Rockingham County Sheriff's Office is not actively doing everything they can to find either Michelle Hunley or Angie Hudson. All you have to do is look at how many appeals that department has made to the public for information. Go look it up. You'll find nothing. The article we referred to earlier was a response to Angie's loved ones trying to call attention to her case. The detectives didn't even have enough sense when they spoke with a reporter to use that as an opportunity to generate leads by appealing to the public. That's an insult to these loved ones and it's an insult to the community which has to rely on them with their authority to investigate. Also, look at their website. We'll provide a link for you. They can't even make sure they have a working link to these ladies' NamUs pages. That's how much they care. Hopefully, they'll at least stop embarrassing themselves that way by fixing those links. Whether or not they make the effort, our call to action today is twofold. First, let's get the FBI involved in these disappearances. Neither one of them were ever investigated, and it's about time somebody did. These women's children grew up without their mothers. It's shameful that nobody even looked for them. Second, let's ask the sheriff's office if they have a plan to reopen these cases and actually work on them until they're resolved. There's plenty of support out there. They could have called in the SBI or the FBI at any time over the last almost 20 years. Now, if you want to lend your support to the loved ones of these missing women, there are advocacy pages for both of them which you can like and follow. We'll provide URLs in the show notes as usual. If you know anything about either one of these cases, please contact either the administrators of those pages or you could always call the Rockingham County Sheriff's Office at 336-634-3232 or contact their district attorney to make sure he knows about these cases. That would be Jason Ramey at 336-634-3232. 6010. He was actually instrumental in ousting the previous district attorney, who was mired in scandal. Oliver Wendell Holmes has been credited with saying, Memories may fade and witnesses dissemble, but circumstances never lie. The circumstances of these cases have not changed. People might refuse to talk, but so what? If they have something to hide, that's what they're going to do. Or they're going to lie, and it's authorities' jobs to catch them in those lies. We'd like to see these cases worked. You've heard our opinion. You've heard what some of the loved ones say. What do you think happened to Michelle and Angie? We want to hear what you think. If you're from the area, you might know something the rest of us don't, and your input might help everyone else understand more about why this happened and why it has continued. Don't forget, catch us on social media like Instagram, Reddit, Twitter, or follow the Facebook page. You can also hit us up on our website, casequaint.com. 
And before I leave, I want to share one more quote with you, which I have shared before, but it just seems so apropos today. John Walsh is the parent of a murdered child and used to host America's Most Wanted. He is a huge supporter of police and law enforcement, as we are at Case Acquaint. But even John says, I have no tolerance for those who wait to intervene. Thank you for listening. We'll talk again soon.